to Namaste Motherfuckers, the only podcast where the worlds of work, comedy and well-being collide. The podcast where the life-changing stuff happens. I'm your host Callie Beaton and this episode is called No Time to Pee. And if you haven't already, do keep remembering to rate, review and recommend the podcast. We've got some exciting things going on with it at the moment in terms of it getting on the radar of some good people. None so good as you for listening to it. So yeah, gleaming stars, lovely reviews, fill your boots. But never mind this shameless self-promotion. Let's get back to today's episode, the theme of which is babies. No babies were born to UK Prime Ministers between 1850 and the year 2000. And it was in 2000 that Tony Blair, well, I guess Sherry Blair, broke the cycle by having their baby. I remember because I had a baby that year too. Since 2000, a total of three British Prime Ministers have had offspring born during the time they were in power. Um, And uh, yeah, since Boris took power, no one has a fucking clue how many babies have been born to serving Prime Ministers. New Zealand has the ability to block people from registering baby names that they think are inappropriate. Rejected names include Fat Boy and twins called Fish and Chips. But names that have been allowed include Violence, twins called Benson and Hedges, and some poor child called Number 16 Bus Shelter. Apparently, parents who use a lot of baby talk raise chattier children. And if you play peekaboo with your baby, um, it's actually a thing that happens in nearly all cultures worldwide. And uh, during lockdown, Japanese parents apparently started ordering bags of rice that weighed the same as their newborn children so that they could send them to relatives who couldn't visit them, um, who would then have the experience of hugging the baby. Oh, I might try that with a big bag of rice and pretend it's a boyfriend. Can you tell if this is on or not? I'm so bad with them. That's my guest today, Harriet Kemsley. And now for some little cute baby animal facts. Baby turtles call to each other while they're still in their shells so that they all hatch at the same time. And baby opossums, which are not the same as possums, baby opossums, my son keeps an opossum, they are so small at birth, little tiny opossums, you could fit 20 of them in a teaspoon. And baby vampire bats are sometimes adopted by their mum's best friend if their mum dies. You see, that's the sisterhood in action. Apparently, baby T-Rexes were about the size of a chihuahua. Maybe they were yappy like a chihuahua too, and that's why they're extinct. Sorry, chihuahua owners. Um, There was a baby boom in the wild goat population of Lundudno in Wales in 2021 because the wild goats hadn't had their usual contraceptive injections the year before due to the pandemic. And finally, in 2020, a judge in Oklahoma ruled that forcing a baby or a child to listen to Baby Shark on repeat was inhumane. Fair. I think I'm on it now. Amazing. And then I need quick time player. Do you want me to record it? If you don't mind. Harriet Kemsley is an award-winning comedian, writer and actor. She starred in the reality sitcom Bobby and Harriet Get Married with her husband Bobby Mayer to critical acclaim. Her many and regular other TV appearances include Live at the Apollo, Dave's Hypothetical, 
Comedy Central's Roast Battle, and she's a recurring guest on 8 Out of 10 Cats Does Countdown and 8 Out of 10 Cats. Her other broadcast credits include hosting the BBC Radio 4 Comedy Club, the Radio 1 Comedy Lounge, BBC 3's Comedy Marathon, The One Show, and Kevin Hart's LOL Live. She and Bobby are now parents to her little baby Mabel. We talk a lot about baby Mabel in the episode. And Harriet will be taking her brand new solo show, Honeysuckle Island, to Edinburgh in August and on tour afterwards. There are links to all of that in the show notes. If you have never seen Harriet do stand-up, go, go, go. She's absolutely awesome. Harriet and I talked about babies, bobbies, dogs, comedy, gingerness, sleep, dyspraxia, chaos co-parenting, origin stories, live at the Apollo, little people, big rooms and authenticity. But I started by asking Harriet about how old Mabel was at the time of recording. nearly seven months old six and a half so kind of bouncy baby lots of smiles just perfect she's so smiley she's just learned to wave she does this it's just it's I just can't get over it I won't say what you were doing with your hand for anyone listening because you just does this (laughs) have we started I didn't realize I was just chatting to you (laughs) no we are we take we'll we'll just dive in wherever but yeah no she's so sweet um yeah that age is really nice and I have to say the pictures I've seen of her that you've sent me and on Instagram she's got that is am I allowed to say she's got that perfect little chubby baby look it doesn't make any sense I I really thought we would have just like the faultiest child like I I was just like bracing myself for just horror um and she's just so sweet something is somehow it's worked I don't know what I don't know what has happened but somehow and everyone's like she's so calm it doesn't make any sense because she comes from you two it's just bizarre it's funny how you get, um, this is going to sound wrong when I say this, but I, because I was going to say, you know, you sometimes get really good looking parents and then it skips a generation. It's, well, yeah, all, the pa- exactly. all the kid gets really clear attributes of each parent, but in completely the wrong way around. It so you're like, work. I can really see that that is, but it's a really bad, like, yeah, it's a really bad um, collab. Whereas I think you guys, but you say that it was going to be a cute baby. You and Bobby are very cute. I feel like you had to say that, but um, thank you for saying me and Bobby. Bobby's well, ginger, isn't he? So I think anyone who's with a gin- gingery person, would you say Bobby's gingery? Uh, yeah, sorry, I just knocked over the table. Um, yes, Bobby is quite gingery. His hair is actually more strawberry blonde, but his beard is very gingery. There you go. Um, there you go. Yes. He's so really baby, pale. but baby Mabel hasn't inherited the ginger gene. I think she's a little bit strawberry blonde. It depends on the light, and she doesn't. She has what Bobby calls um, apparently in North America, it's a thing called a scullet. Um, so it's like it's like a mullet, but it just like uh, shows your skull. Um, so she's got that. Uh, very cute. Um, it's a strong look, isn't it? Honestly, real strong months. look. Yeah. yeah, it's growing in patches, and uh, yeah, we'll see what comes next. Uh, I was really hoping to get a ginger kid. My son's beard is ginger. I should say he's twenty-four. In case people are like, "Why is your beard? Why is your son got a beard?" <laughs> uh, he's got a ginger beard and a little bit ginger hair. And my daughter doesn't have ginger hair, so I think if you get a ginger child, you'd be very, very blessed. Harriet. It's lucky. Yeah, I think so. Can you hear the dog barking? I can hear the dog barking, but not in a way I think that would disrupt the podcast. But how is it? How is it for you? Is he going to be happier if he's with you? She? He? No, he can't. He can't be. Um, but I could go in a different room if it's too annoying. 
I don't mind and I don't think it's disruptive to the podcast if it's not disruptive to you. I think it's good because we did say when we said we'd do this, we said there'll be at least babies crying, puppies pooing um, or dogs barking. And I think short of the baby now, we're, we're, we're saying what we, you know, the baby needs to appear, cry and poo a bit and yeah. then I think we're done. Life comes at you fast, is what I've realised. <laughs> I know, year. it does, doesn't it? And it's so, um, because well, we were talking about this when we gigged together last week, and I said, let's save it for the podcast, because I cannot imagine how you can have a small baby, you're both comedians, and anyone is even thinking humorous thoughts, let alone writing them down or, or saying them on stage. So can you take me through how you have a comedic brain at this particular point in life my brain I have no control of it at the moment is one thing um I have to write a show and so luckily I think you know when you're so tired that things happen because you're constantly making mistakes I think luckily that is really helping um with the comedy um and um there's just no way around it it's just I think also what's good is we're very lucky um that it's not, Catherine Ryan's always said this, like comedy is not like you don't go leave really early in the morning when they've just woken up and then get back like just as they go to sleep. Like we can kind of like go for a few hours, come back, like you can dip in and out a bit. I mean, Bobby can kind of pass it back and forth. So my brain has no space and I'm constantly tired, but it's fine. And it's two great things. Like I love comedy. I love the baby. Feel lucky to get to do both. I just, if I could have a bit more sleep, then the dream. Yeah, I, I don't, because I did um, I did a gig last night after not having no sleep the night before, only because I went out and stayed over at a gig. Because <laughs> no I was out living the life you were living until uh, oh six months ago. God. And so I had had about, I don't know, what for you probably sounds fine. I'd had like, I don't know, four, four and a half hours sleep. And then I was gigging at Top Secret last night, you know, doing the usual kind of two gigs. That, and I definitely, I mean, I was fine, but I was not firing. On, I definitely had to be a bit less like I'm in the room and I'm really quick witted. It was like yeah. here's the material I've written and I can just about tell you. So I, and I, that's obviously how it is for you all the time at the moment. So I, I don't know how you're doing it, Harriet. I've stopped, well, I've stopped breastfeeding and I think that's really helped. I was, that was, I think, like tr- draining too much and also I reckon that's probably partly hangover that you had there that I haven't been able to drink for a long time so mm. I think to be honest I've saved a lot of energy through that I like the way you're like it's partly hangover you had there Kelly I, I would agree <laughs> I would agree yeah <laughs> I'd say 90% hangover uh so yeah so you haven't got the hangover you haven't got the depletion through breast milk you've just yeah. got baby exhaustion just baby exhaustion, just trying to do everything um, and remember everything. I think that's the problem. I was much better at, because I am, um, I have dyspraxia. So I'm naturally, my natural state is absolute chaos. Um, but I have learned over the years, like I've had to work really hard to not exist in a state of chaos. So I have a lot of things that I have to do. And now it is very easy to go back to absolute chaos but I'm trying very hard to like control the chaos. It's really hard dyspraxia or no dyspraxia to control the chaos of a baby. You like, you can't yeah. imagine anyone who's listening who hasn't had one. I remember someone saying to me before I had my first one, oh, you'll be lucky even to manage to kind of clean your teeth and put on a clean pair of pants. And I was like, excuse me, I think you'll find I manage it. And then you have the baby, you're like, oh my God, like it's three in the afternoon. I remember I used to always eat an apple 
before I went to work, before I had a baby. And I remember once I had a baby, I was like, I have not managed to get wash and eat an apple in six months because that was quite an undertaking because you need both That's, your hands, you need to get to the yeah. tap. You need to remember your, then you've got to remember to eat the whole apple. That felt like a massive achievement. I ate, ate my first apple when Jake was about the age Mabel is now and it was a big day. It, absolutely. I completely get it. I, um, I, before I had Mabel, I had to go to the doctors cause I had a problem where I was peeing too much. So like I was peeing like every hour. And then they said, what happened is I got into a habit of peeing and it was making me pee more, like more. Oh. So then I had to do like a pee diary to like try and go longer, like between peeing. So is it a psychological thing? You'd set yourself up a sort of weird schedule. I just, yeah, started peeing too much. And then now uh, the cure is to have a baby. There's, yeah. there's absolutely no time to pee. I have yeah. like not peed in six months. Yeah, I know. It's an absolutely brilliant way to get cystitis. The, uh, not the way we used to get it when we were young, friends. Not single. the fun way. Not the fun way. And is it in terms of um, how it is with the dyspraxia? So I know a bit about kind of isms and uh, neurodiversity and all of that stuff, as anyone who listens to this knows. So dyspraxia, people think of it as kind of... Um, something that it manifests sometimes as physical like lack of spatial awareness it can be yeah. kind of clumsiness but what so what's it like for you then with dyspraxia what was it like with pre-mabel and post-mabel um so I think uh the chaos thing of just like I will break something and I think sometimes I'll just have really bad days where I'll break I'll just like constantly break things throughout the day um and it's quite hard to organize your thoughts or, or think about things and so there's so many things that I have to do that it's now with the baby that it's it's like I think I have trained myself quite well if I'd have had a baby 10 years ago I I just I it's too painful to even imagine how awful it would be but I've got things that I now try and do that make it much easier and I think also the my biggest problem with not with the baby, but having a baby is the anxiety. It's like, I am just constantly, I think because I'm clumsy and I make mistakes very easily, it's very difficult. I, I have trained myself to imagine every possible thing that I could do that would go wrong so that I don't do them. But then now there's like actual stakes. Like I'm not really worried about myself anymore. It's like the worry of what could happen to the baby. And so I'm constantly thinking about every worst case scenario, or every awful thing that could happen to her. And that is very tiring. In term, because it, I, I think once you've got a baby, there's that idea of you're only ever as happy as your unhappiest kid. And that's the sort of thing that I couldn't really grasp. I used to think I was too selfish to feel like that. I was like, yeah, but I'm really selfish. I, I know. I <laughs> so thought that. Be fine. Yeah, I know. And then blooming mother love kicks in, or not just mother love, parent love kicks in. You're like, oh, shit, I do actually really care about this little small It's a spell creature. or something. It's mad. You're just like, it's incredible. But it is such a beautiful thing. Like, it's reminded me getting the, I'm just going to um, equate getting Jeff the puppy with actually having a human baby. No, you must. So, it's exactly the same. <laughs> it's totally yes. the same. Just Yes, you birthed him. Yeah, you recovered oh my God, from that. The birth that. was awful. The midwife yeah. was so horrible to me. Uh, so at my birth plan got ripped up and then Jeff <laughs> came home and I still had stitches. But um, no, but equate it. But I do, it did remind me of that, um, even with a dog, which it obviously is. I'm going to go, it's like 10% of the love you feel for a human baby, only because one of my children's listening. It's actually the same. But when you have the, when you get, it's like it creeps up on you with a dog that suddenly, like I suddenly did realise after about two weeks, like I literally would lay down my life for my dog and then it actually made me think god I've forgotten what that feels like when you've got a baby and that enormous weight of responsibility I remember crying yeah. when 
when the baby blues hit and Jake was whatever he was, like seven days old, and I just started weeping and Jake's dad, Ed, who I was still with at the time, he was like, are you all right, Kelly? And I said, I just can't bear it. He said, what can't you bear? I said, he's going to go to school one day. And oh. I don't know why I was crying when he was <laughs> seven days old because he was going to have to go to school. But it's that yeah. they're so fragile, aren't they? And so little. And you feel like if you just screwed it up, something horrible could happen. That's it. And your everything in you is just telling you that you have to protect this thing. Thank goodness. I mean, it'd be awful if it wasn't, if I was like, if I had no <laughs> instinct to do that. But um, it is, it is very, um, it's scary. It's really scary. Um, because you're like the mistakes are so like it just feels so um huge I think the six months point has been very helpful I think because also everyone I think it's a very good thing we talk about things more it's so good but I think there is a lot of talk of everything that can go wrong and it can feel very overwhelming when you're kind of in it and you're so afraid of anything happening and even if it's a tiny percentage that something might happen you can't help obsessing about it um, so I've just, the last six months I've been so controlling, like I haven't let anybody, like we've had a lot of help, like I've had Bobby, we've, we started to have babysitters a few months ago, but I won't let anybody not be in the same room with her until she was six months old. So we had a baby monitor, but I made them still be in the same room as her. And now we've started to use the baby monitor and that is much, um, better. Is that, I, I heard you on lockdown well it's not called lockdown parenting hell now it's just called parenting hell but I heard you talking yeah. there about the birth and about you and Bobby and um, for anyone listening who doesn't know you're married to fellow comedian at Bobby Mayer and I heard you talking about the different I remember <laughs> you talking about like physically how you passed her around and what you say it made me really laugh like what you say about how you physically handled Mabel when she was little and how you'd pass Mabel around and how Bobby would do it and how you would do it yeah I do it and every woman that I know passes her with like tender care like she's a precious package whereas Bobby and my dad they're just like throwing her like in the air like she's a rugby ball or something like tossing her to each other and then the person is like very taken aback when they take the baby it's um it's madness just so much confidence right from the start it is funny, isn't it? Because you sort of think, now do you look at new new parents? Because I used to not really think about it. You'd see a new parent with a baby and not really, and just assume, well, they know how to have a baby. But now I think that poor person, like a week ago, they didn't have a baby and they didn't know how to look after one. And now they've got a week old out baby and they still don't know how to look after one. And they're out with the papoose and all the shit and they don't know what they're doing. And that I never used to think of it like that till I had a baby myself. I never, I literally apologized to a friend on Saturday. <laughs> she was like the first one out of our friends to have a baby. And I just was used, like, I didn't ever offer to babysit or like give any help. And she was like, so young. And we just like, well, oh, so annoying she can't come out and just gave no like just didn't check I was just useless and she said that she gets it like it's like until you do it you just don't know I guess it means we have no empathy but I think it is hard to understand until you go through it just how life-changing and overwhelming it is and all you want is just somebody to be like this is what you do let me help yeah, I think that's why people end up with set, like second kids tend to be loads easier. And I honestly think it is because you just know what you're doing. And so I've the second one sort of now. just gets yeah. a sense where they're just like, I remember when Ella started, Ella's the little one who you just saw uh, walking about behind me in case you wondered what that tableau was. Um, so, and she, 
I remember her doing like crying in the hospital or whatever. And I remember thinking, oh my God, if that is your cry, you are going to have to really ramp that up to even get like on the radar of what's going on now. Because <laughs> we had an early three-year-old who knew how to be heard. And I just think there is a, but there is that, um, it's weird, isn't it? That you get given this incredibly precious thing with no manual. And I used to always think, well, anyone can bring a kid up. How hard can it be? But you realize when you've got one, there are quite a lot of variables that don't always go so well. So it isn't that anyone can bring a kid up. Um, you might be able to keep a kid hopefully physically safe, but you do start feeling this weight of responsibility about everything else, don't you? It's madness. There should be, I mean, there should be lessons. Like they're just like anybody just, I mean, have I'm, sex. Anybody, anybody can have sex. Can have sex. The they could just thing. produce a baby. Like I didn't know anything. Like a friend earlier was like, oh, I don't know what to do. And I was like, I don't know what to do. You just have to work it out somehow. I mean, thank God for Google. What did people do before Google? Well, I had babies before Google. What did you do? I How can't you know? remember. I really can't remember. Like, I know there were books, but I don't remember reading them very well. And I think I don't actually remember what we used to do. I think it probably saved a whole load of worry about, oh, they've got a little bit of a tickly thing in their nose and then you google it and it says take them straight to a and e so i think probably yeah. that saved us a bit of trouble but i don't remember what on earth we did i do think and this is making me sound like i had my children just after world war ii which i didn't my children were born in the well one in 97 and one in 2000 but i do think that i, I do think there was something about not having smartphones in those days like i'm really pleased mm. i didn't have the dilemma of should I be looking at my sweet little cherub baby or should I be looking at this email? And that when you were out with the baby, there was no, I don't think I even had a mobile phone. I didn't, when Jake was born, I didn't even have a mobile. So I, I kind of feel pleased about that probably. I think that's a benefit, but yeah. But then I don't know how we knew how to do it. I mean, I don't suppose we did. <laughs> and you didn't have a cocoa melon when you were in a car ride that you could just put this baby crack in front of them and then they <laughs> they're quiet for 10 minutes just like mouth agape we had horrible um like they had they had little baby walkman things that they always broke because they did have like clunky headphones oh, and they'd yeah. always like stick the headphone up their ass or something you'd be like oh no the headphones <laughs> gone wrong or, or you'd have like literally cds and you'd be playing like the horrible wheels on the bus cd and you couldn't then just find something like it algorithmically on spotify so i think that probably damaged everyone's musical taste but yeah. probably did keep them safe but is there um in terms of what you're scared of then just to fan the flames of fear uh, on a Monday afternoon, because we are recording this in a heat wave when you and I probably are feeling slightly irrationally hot anyway. But what are the fears then that you have that that eclipse you? I mean, they're pretty dark. This is the problem. I have kind of quite obsessive thoughts sometimes. So it's just, it's actually every time I go to change her, it's, there's a tile floor, she could fall off and right. smash her head. Or if I'm pushing her in the pram, I think, don't let go of the pram or she's going to roll away. <laughs> I'm going to have to chase her and then she could go into oncoming traffic. Um, so every single thing I've got to worry. And um, the problem is I then share that worry with anyone that might be looking after her. And I say, don't do this because then this terrible thing might happen. And they're like, okay, obviously I wasn't going to do that thing. That's cool. But it makes you a bit controlling. So Bobby is like him leaving the house. is like so easy. He just leaves the house and everything's fine. Whereas I feel like I have to check that she has everything. Otherwise, what thing could go wrong if she's hung or... And he just leaves the house and he's like, I'll deal with it. It'll be fine. But that's kind of evolution, I guess. If you think about the ideal 
two-parent thing regardless of gender Mm. if you've each got you kind of probably do need someone who's really like overly awake at the wheel and you probably do need someone to kind of be a bit looser so the baby gets a bit of that as well so it's probably actually the yin and the yang of that is probably quite nice I don't want to be this side I want to be the chill side and the problem is the more the other person is chilled the more you have to be the highly strung one because the more relaxed they are the the more you're worried that they're going to make a mistake so then you have to tell them what to do and then the more they're they pull back because you're telling them what to do. It's a vicious cycle. It's really, um, I always wonder how anybody says they got pregnant a second time by accident, because I'm thinking by the time you're a year or two into this, how the hell is anyone doing anything spontaneously by accident? I mean, it's so hard to like be romantic and like see anything in a romantic way when it's just like, let's keep the baby alive. She takes up all like, I remember before I had her, I was like, said to Bobby, I was like, oh, um, I, uh, I'm i just really worried she might get in between us and then I'll want to spend more time with you and I won't be able to because of the baby. And I'm like, that was... will be who? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I don't even I don't even remember what he looks like. Uh, yeah. It's really, it is really difficult. And I do think like look, we split up when the kids, when my littlest one was uh, nearly three. And I just think it's more of a wonder that anyone kind of holds it together. Because when you look at the shift, like, and I know you you did, um, Bobby and Harriet get married. So people, some people um, listening to this will have watched that. And any, can people still watch it if they it's still out there to watch? Yes, I'm not exactly sure where it is at the moment, um, but That's it will Google's probably be for. somewhere. Yeah, and there's definitely clips on um, the Comedy Central channel yeah, there's or on YouTube, clips. I think. Yeah. yeah, so people can definitely get a bit of an insight into you and Bobby and anyone know, who knows your and or Bobby's uh, comedy will sort of get, get the general gist of it. But it is a really, it, I guess because you were so kind of being so public about your traits and then what the Venn diagram is of putting Harriet and Bobby together and that overlap. So you've kind of inhabited that quite publicly until Mabel. And I don't know how you're feeling about being so public about that now you've got Mabel. I think it's fine. I think that um, one good thing is we are pretty relaxed about that. I mean, neither of us is particularly worried about how we come across. (laughs) I think in some ways, like I think that... um, that is a good thing about doing comedy for a really long time. You do, you like, you do just stop caring maybe what other people think so much. Um, yeah. And you're both in that. Cause I know I heard you again on the lockdown, um, but on the Parenting Hell podcast, talking about the fact that you were going off to Top Secret to do, you were both going to do, I don't know if it was previews or sets, but you yeah. were going to each have Mabel in between kind of thing. So you were at the same venue, tag teaming Mabel. Yeah, that's what we did at the beginning. It was, in hindsight, an absolutely mad idea. It didn't um, sound stressful. Yeah, I was like, yeah, we got this idea. It's going to be great. Um, and I think it was in a way because it meant that I I think I would have found it really hard to go back to work if I'd left it too long because I think I would have just got into this thing of being like, I'm not very good at focusing at more than one thing. And so I think that because I just so quickly just went straight back and I'd said to Bobby before I had the baby, make sure I do this. And then afterwards I'd be like, I don't know if I should. And he'd be like, I've got like you, you've got to do this. And I'm so glad I did because then there's still that, I can be both things, which is nice. There's still that part of me that, um, that I love what I do. And um, so, yeah, we'd take her to Top Secret. Um, Mark and everyone at Top Secret was amazing. So we brought her to the club with us um, when she was like a month old and um, we'd be in the green room and one of us would open the show and the other one would would close it. And so we could just have her there. And um, Angel Comedy were great as well. Um, They let us use um, Upstairs and do um, a show together. And people have been, people were so brilliant. And in hindsight, I can't really believe that 
we took her out um but people were so lovely and I didn't want to be away from her so I didn't want to leave her with anybody I didn't trust so she was always with one of us and we're only going to work for 20 minutes and then coming back and then swapping it felt like a no-brainer and also I think it's um as a freelance person it's not like you get you get like state maternity pay and um I don't know how anybody exists of, of that so it feels like you have to find a uh, a way to make it work well especially when you're both doing the same thing because if one person had a kind of like you know there are obviously plenty of comedians who have kind of hitched their wagon to a lawyer or whoever and there's one I person know, that would like, be great that's yeah. a smart move right really smart yeah. we're both idiots yeah well at least you've got another idiot helping you out i'm just a, <laughs> yeah. i'm just flying solo idiot so you could have made even worse life choices namaste motherfuckers but i think it is actually really good for people to hear as well that you did it and how you did it because whatever career you're in there is that bit I think for for whether you're you know the mum or the dad or whether you're you know uh, parenting from whatever other kind of um setup that you think it would be really easy if money was no object at a certain point just go I'm just gonna immerse myself in this enormously intense love story with my baby yeah and then next thing you'd know the baby would be like off at nursery or school and then you're like what am I doing and who am I and I, I said that to you when we gigged together last week that the bit people don't always realise when they have tiny children and they're grappling with, should I be leaving the baby or how do I do it? But it was only when my, I said to you, you know, when my kids got to be kind of maybe preteens and teenagers that I realised that inadvertently I had given them a really lovely kind of feminist or at least yeah. equalist model of if you want something, you go and get it and you don't expect someone to do it for you and you decide how you want to live your life, which is not, not saying that anyone who decides not to go back to work, that's also a really important model and you're showing your kid loads of really important things. But I think that guilt you have when they're tiny, I think the only person suffering at that point is you as the parent, the baby isn't suffering when you're going off and, and actually it's really good for them to be with other people. I think so. I mean, we've got great, great babysitters now and she's so happy when they come and um, it's... Um, That's annoying, it's, isn't it? You're like, look, I do the nights, Mabel. Why look, are you giving this person Mabel, this? I'm here for the hard graph. They just <laughs> yeah. popping it out for a couple of hours. Uh, but um, but yeah, my uh, my agent said something interesting, which is what she had heard about how, because it's tr- like you can spend like all day with them, like every day and you don't, even kind of register it because you're just kind of surviving whereas if you are working and you make sure that when the time you're together is like really quality focused time then you can have the best of both like someone said somewhere that like it's that all that like a child needs is like 15 minutes of like quality like connection every day I mean I'm hoping to give maybe a lot more than that maybe 17 sometimes (laughs) exactly 17 maybe 17 and a half occasionally um but like proper like focused time whereas I I think so many parents just because life is so exhausting and you're trying to do things um if you're just trying to get through the day you don't necessarily stop and connect with them um so that's the aim anyway and also the balance. I mean, what you guys do have, because you both do the same thing for a living, I'm not saying every day it feels balanced, but to actually have that, I, I do think, you know, one of the things that I think's really helped my kids have kind of, you know, they say you give your kids roots and you give them wings. And I think the roots bit's kind of easy to do if you're in a loving home. The wings bit's a bit harder is how do you keep yeah. letting go, both as a tiny yeah, baby yeah, by yeah. through. It's so hard to let them fall metaphorically and literally. But I do think if they can have that relationship with two parents, that is an enormous luxury that loads of kids don't really have. There's usually, there's often just there's often one main parent or mainly yeah. nursery with a bit of parenting kind of around the edges. So it's amazing that Mabel's main carers are the two of you. 
Yeah, it's lovely. And absolutely some women like definitely and then like have the patience and the ability to to be there through it all. But I the times that I've just had to 24 hours a day for like a few days in a row, I found like very draining and actually having a bit of time to to be myself. I will say as well, I think it is I think it would have been very difficult to do it like 10 years ago when I wasn't able to go off and make money and then pay a babysitter I think it's very difficult when you start stand-up you have to do so much stuff for free um, and then doing a day job and then having a baby like that would be I don't know how I would have done it then so it is the timing has been good so far um, there is that there was something that um it's it, when you're thinking about that it's the kind of timing and how you then are programmed as a parent and when you were saying about your dark thoughts um I had Abigail Burdess on uh, a few weeks ago and she said she had these rich she used to have these really dark thoughts her kids are like I think you know in their tweens now but she said she used to have this particularly falling down the stairs dropping a baby down the stairs she oh yeah was this massive vision of I'm gonna fall with yeah. the baby on the baby the baby's gonna fall and she spoke to um, someone about it. I don't know if it was her therapist or someone else. And they said it is that is you're safeguarding your baby and you're having those dark thoughts. It doesn't mean you're a weird, dark mother yeah. or parent, but you're having them. It's a sort of preemptive thing and it is you protecting the baby at, at all costs. And so there How you does are. that explain, though, that I did fall down the stairs while pregnant? Uh, well, that means you're dyspraxic. Right? <laughs> there we go. Okay, that's my body not yeah, communicating well. That's not okay. helpful, but yeah. reasonable and understandable. Oh, my God. So tell me about that. So you did literally fall down the stairs. Probably. Yeah, it was wild. Bobby was in... Oh, uh, boo, where was he? Romania, maybe filming. Bulga- Bulgaria filming. And um, I was on my own for two weeks when I was really pregnant. And, um, yeah, I fell down the stairs and it was so scary I mean it is very much not the first time I've fallen down the stairs and we've put it in this like kind of like textured carpet now so it is much harder to fall but um I think maybe it was a good wake-up call that it happened then rather than when I had the baby that um uh but yeah I fell down the stairs and it was really scary I like a because I kind of just fell like right kind of on my back um how pregnant were you so I guess I was four months maybe and that's um, also really nerve-wracking you feel really like you feel like you could just time. dislodge it at that point yeah I know, you can't, I know. Like it's so scary and you feel and like I don't think there was but like it's just so scary and um uh yeah so it's just such a mad time when you're just so worried about doing the wrong thing and then something like that you're like what is wrong with me why can't I even just walk down the stairs and protect this baby inside of you because you feel like your whole I, I I've never really had it before like I'm I'm very clumsy, but I just I'm like, oh well, you know, I'll just keep going. But when you have a baby to protect, it's um it's it's terrifying. It was I, I remember watching you when you did live at the Apollo pregnant, didn't you? Yes. How pregnant were you when you did that? So I think I was six months when I did that. Because that was I know I think Ellie Taylor did it pregnant. I think there have been a couple of people yeah. who did and I loved I loved watching you do it. And I also, by the way, it was a very Cali beaten dress you had on for that. I was like, you know, very a little monochrome Peter Pan collar type thing. Very nice. I love a little collar and it's nice to be old. That's one thing about being pregnant that's great. It was being able to wear like um at skin tight clothes that could just kind of oh. go over your tummy and then let's not worry about like I've always had a pregnant shape like I always <laughs> looked a bit pregnant yeah. and I still do and I, the only reason people don't ask if I'm pregnant now is because I'm too old that's I never handy some, yeah that's good yeah literally I remember someone saying to me 
I had two occasions when people argued about the fact I wasn't pregnant and people didn't just say, oh, I think you're pregnant. They, there was a woman when I was buying a bra um, at Marks and Spencer's and I had at least one child with me, maybe two. And I had like one child like perched up on the counter, like a little, you know, toddlery one while I was paying. And then she said to whichever child it was, I said, and when's mummy going to, when are you going to get a brother or a sister? And I said, they're not, and she literally, she goes, well, should I can see? And I was like, yeah, you can't. And so that happened. And another time, a friend of uh, one of the kids, um, another parent from the school run, I was at like a picnic for someone's fourth birthday or something. And this dad, who was a, he was like an osteopath or he was used to seeing people's bodies, basically. And he said, oh, you know, I can see you're pregnant. How far along are you? I said, I'm not pregnant. He said, no, I know. I know. You know, I see bodies in the course of my life. I can see you're pregnant. He said, I'd say, what, four months? And I was like... <laughs> So it's one thing being told you're pregnant and another one people double down. They're like, well, you might not think you yeah, are. <laughs> I have exactly the same thing. My body is just like, it, I'll never have a flat stomach and it will never look like I am not three months pregnant. Well, do I remember saying when I was in a changing room, trying when they used to have more sort of open plan changing rooms, um, then they I don't think they really do that now. And I reckon my youngest was probably like seven or something. And I was trying something on and the woman, there was a real beautiful, glamorous woman who worked there. And I could see her just looking at me, trying to wrestle my way into this dress. And I was like, oh, it's so much harder once you've had a baby, isn't it? And she said, how old's the baby? I didn't mean to, but I was like, oh, eight weeks old. And she went, oh, my God, you look really good. And I was like, who's that? She's seven. You've got to take what you can get. That's a great thing to do. Just tell everybody that you've just had a baby. Just like, keep saying that. Yeah. Yes. Until you yes. get so old that you've got to come up with some other like thing that's going on. Um, but did you, in, in terms of the, so the stuff you've done. So I loved watching you on Apollo. Was that your first appearance on Apollo? Yes. Yeah. It was so exciting. Was it, Well, it's an amazing thing. I mean, that is the kind of pinnacle, right? As a stand up. That's what yeah. you want to do. How was it doing that? It was crazy. It was because um, I started doing stand up uh, when so my dad and my mum and dad had been watching live at the Apollo the night before and then they suggested it to me the next day that I should go and do it and um, which was just wild like because I didn't really know anything about stand-up and the stand-ups you saw were nothing like me at all but they were like you're funny why don't you try doing stand-up because I was a bit lost at the time I didn't know what to do and I went and I did it and so it felt like this real like full circle moment to to do it because that's how I'd started it and then to actually be doing it and then to be pregnant with a baby I'd had because I met my husband through doing comedy it was um it felt really really lovely but it was a mad time because there was so much um COVID around and so you so didn't want to get sick because then you couldn't do it and um also I was so pregnant but I was having to like go to clubs every night and just try and run and hone my 20 as much as possible um and is it a 20 you do or do you do longer and they edit it so yeah, how long do you do, you on do a 20 and then they edit it down I think there's an 11 minute version and a seven minute version and um, do they and make so, you do clean because your your well your stuff's really like you, you can go any which way I've seen you, you could I can imagine you could craft a set that could fulfill whatever need but do they curate I mean it very much felt like you your voice and it's lovely that you said that because watching it really felt like that like like they, I, there are some goosebumpy ones you see on Apollo and yours was definitely one. Um, and it's that something that was going on for you obviously came across on screen, which is really lovely. That's really lovely. Um, yeah. So I think because they, they've seen you do a recent set when they come and watch you, I think they're like, that's kind of what we want this time. And so they, they were great. They, they weren't like, they didn't tell me there was anything I couldn't do. Um, and, um, then they you do a trial thing and they give you notes if they 
want to change anything but they didn't um at all they were um they were brilliant like so supportive and um yeah it was amazing so when we got there but it's crazy because you get there at like two o'clock and then it wasn't until nine and so you're just like the the nerves like I've never played a a stage that big I don't think maybe once but um and so and especially after COVID like you haven't performed to like people that that many people in one space and um we did a trial run thank goodness because they let all the um smoke out as you walk through but that's the really bit for a dyspraxic person that's a challenge exactly so I yeah. walked through the smoke and then I was like <clears throat> and then I was like basically like crawling through the smoke to like get on stage and it was like thank god there was a practice or that like would be my entrance instead yeah. of a rock star <laughs> exactly yeah. just like pulling myself <laughs> through on the ground in your fatigues exactly yeah so thank goodness there was a rehearsal that would have been my entrance to live at the Apollo like some people come out like <laughs> skipping and I would have been just gasping there and crawling along the ground so so yeah but um but yeah it was a very um it was a very fun time did you find because when I watch people so um, I've seen you plenty of times I've seen you from sort of you know doing on stage at the cav in Stockwell Street to sort of doing much bigger rooms and I lots of my kind of contemporaries have been on it and it does seem that when people are on that stage you, you sort of do inhabit it like I've seen people who aren't necessarily very physical comedians and then they're on that stage and suddenly you're like oh my god they're like really using the space did you find when you were up there you did you suddenly got a bit of Beyonce about you and we're like I'm rocking this big stage because <laughs> it looks very natural the nearest comparison to me on stage in comedy is probably Beyonce um exactly yeah, I the really, same I yeah. really channel Beyonce yeah um yeah I don't know it, because it's so big it is it is a bit like I can gabble a bit so I was like trying to not go too quickly otherwise um because it's so big that it can take a little while maybe for the laugh to kind of come back to you so you have to try and be slow to kind of judge the pacing um so um, that was something I was like and also you feel like yeah I guess that's true you want to try and take up space because otherwise you're just like a little ant I guess it's funny when you do those I do kind of big stages in my kind of corporate speaking so yeah. I do I do these massive stages and it isn't I actually have better gigs I don't know what it is about it but there's something about when I get up there and, and one of the things I do before I go onto a really big stage I think the biggest one the first big one I did was I think it was the Royal Festival Hall and wow. until then I'd done like smaller ones and I remember standing back and they and also the more formal they get backstage the more they're like right you're going to be on in one and counting down yeah. and I'm yeah. like oh shit whereas if I was just an angel I'd be able to go on and just be funny but as it is I'm like oh god yeah. am I meant to know how to do this job because I don't <laughs> And so I, and I, I remember standing, look, looking at the stage and thinking, I feel so small and inadequate. And then I thought, I'm going to really lean into my smallness. I don't mean it as my voice, but I thought, yeah, I am small. And I'm going to just stand on that bloody stage on my two feet. And I'm going to let my small voice fill this big room. And I just sort of let myself be that little person on the stage. That's and then something, lovely. If that makes sense. Yeah. I can, I couldn't literally big myself up. I could just go, well, you are small, but you're probably okay. <laughs> well, that's on. it. I think you still have to be true to yourself. It's like sometimes it can be um, you feel like, oh, I have to be more like this or or be like this like set version of like what a stand-up is. And um, that's always wrong because then you're not being true to yourself. And also I think there is something nice about being in such a big space in that there is that anon- oh, I can't say the word, anonymity. 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 Anonymity, anonymity. Yeah. Um, because um, my worst is when you're just performing in front of like a few people you know, like that is, oh, and you can see horrible. their expressions. Yeah. Whereas if you've got a huge crowd, then it's like, it, it is, you can't focus too much, which is kind of nice. 
And is it, because that's one of the things, and again, we'll obviously put links to your comedy and most people listening to this will know who know who you are. But one of the things I really, really admire about your comedy, and ever since I think the first time I did see you was emceeing one of the Comedy Virgins nights at the, at the Cavendish in Arms in Stockwell, which if anyone listening lives in London, you haven't been, you need to go into that night and support <laughs> it's a, comedy. Quite it's an experience. Yeah. Quite an experience on and off stage. <laughs> but, that, but you do have a really it does feel really authentic so I think the reason you're doing so well and you get booked for so many things is it you definitely do have a properly distinctive voice there isn't there's nobody where I think anyone would be like oh they're a bit like Harriet or Harriet's a bit derivative (laughs) and I do mean that in a lovely way like it does feel completely authentic and I think that is a it's a really hard thing to carve out a comedic voice that isn't I'm sure you are influenced by comedy you like but but it's very much a Harriet presence which is really lovely and I, I don't know if that felt does it feel kind of natural to you then that you just are able to be so authentic does it feel authentic to you I appreciate that I think it has been um a while coming because I think um I am naturally or at least when I was younger and even when I started stand up much more I was very shy and so it's it, it was very unnatural to kind of take up people's time and like talk on a stage and I think that I would automatically like try and go down different routes and I would always listen to like what people would tell me like what a stand-up does and how you should behave and be more like professional whereas what I've learned more recently just by literally doing it like just by like doing it every night and doing things like hosting at the Cavendish um it um Gemma Beagley who's this um uh brilliant comic she 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 was the host there and then she gave it to me and she said I think this would be really good for you because it will let you kind of really relax and be yourself on stage. And I think it's true just getting up on stage and just having to talk. And it's, it's such a hard thing to do, but I think it literally is just by doing it over and over, you start to have to be yourself. And that's the best way that you're going to be funny. I think is if, you are and I mean it's a heightened version of yourself definitely um but the more I can kind of let myself be that without worrying about what people are gonna think whereas I can think oh people I should be a bit more like this because this is what people want and actually that's not what they want all you have to try and do is just be as authentic to yourself as possible but um it's not always easy because then that's the thing that um if they don't like that then that's really scary because that's you (laughs) Well, it's, it is, it's scary, but it's also, it's so hard to just keep backing yourself because none of us probably have titanic self-confidence that so we wouldn't be doing what we do. We've probably all had a bit of a tough paper round or we wouldn't be comics in some yeah. way. There's something about us that maybe yeah. doesn't belong or doesn't feel quite right within itself. And then it is really, it's so easy. I don't know about you, but the ones I have to answer good. And when I start thinking, oh, well, they love what that MC is doing and I'm about to come on and I'm nothing like that MC, so they won't like me, as opposed to going, well, yeah, they don't want to just see someone like the MC all night. But I sometimes really get in my own way. I had one my, my hungover top secret gig last night, which I think anyone watching would have probably thought was absolutely fine. Yeah. But you know those ones where you feel like you're playing like a record at the wrong speed, you're just not quite in it? Yeah, and yeah, it was, yeah. And I realised it was because I watched Nico have a brilliant like MC thing and the, blow the roof off with stuff that was I was about to go in and try and do a bit more subtle sort of you know nuanced uh, neurodiverse zookeeper sun material I was like well they don't want that <laughs> they just want me to and 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 the worst thing you can do is not not own it isn't it? you've just got to go on and yeah. really unashamedly be like this is what you're getting and it is me and but I, I I do really struggle with it I know you've been going a little bit longer than me but I suspect you've got 
I don't know. I, there's something. It's funny that you and Bobby are, are, um, are together because I think both of you have that in bucket loads that you both are very much your own comedians, and neither of you would be confused with any other acts on the circuit. And I do mean <laughs> that. I mean that in a lovely yeah, way. Yeah, absolutely. Bobby you wouldn't weirdos. be anyone but himself <laughs> at every point. Uh, yeah, that's true. That's uh, and it is. But it is. There's something really lovely about that. And did you? Um, I, I want to ask you the three questions I ask everybody. But in terms of you, so you've been going just over ten years. Is that right? Yeah. 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 And so what is next for you? Um, into you've done you've done lots of telly, you've got you still got the podcast with Sunil. Do you still do that? Or yeah, it's that... on a break at the moment. I think it's gonna come back um hopefully in a slightly different form. And um, it was so it was called Why is Harriet Crying? And it was because I was crying very regularly at the time, but it was like for very silly things, but it would be like a different reason every fortnight. And then um by some miracle I was crying less <laughs> so we we didn't have as many things so I think now we're going to focus um just change the the focus a little bit to make it like because it's a very authentic uh podcast and so we want it to be like very like true to us and where we're at so um so yeah we're just going to change it up slightly um and then hopefully it's going to come back in a different form brilliant so and we'll put a link to the to the episode you've done with Sunil who's also a brilliant 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 person who I'm yeah, going to get on the is. podcast for sure and is the um so you've got the podcast you're doing yes. you seem to be doing loads of like felt like the minute you'd had Mabel I was on your Insta and stuff seeing you kind of like in dressing rooms on tv studios <laughs> and just being booked for stuff I was like fair play so it looks like you've got quite a lot going on kind of telly wise yeah it's been good I was so I think I worried about having a baby for so long because it's there's so much stigma around it I think and you just worry that people will be like oh she doesn't want to do this because she has a baby whereas Bobby will be available but um but the the woman probably won't want to do this because of a baby but um I I love what I do it's so fun and um also people have been brilliant like some production companies have paid for tickets train tickets and hotels for my mum so she can come and bring Mabel like uh, I've brought Mabel to dressing rooms and my sisters watched her or Bobby and um, people have been brilliant. And then sometimes obviously you can't bring her like um, we're going away at the end of the week and um, so I'm leaving her overnight for the first time ever, which is um, very scary. Um, but it, it's it's been, I think it's sometimes there's so many negative stories around it. And I think that's so good that people are, are honest about how hard it is. But I think also there is, hope out there that you can do it and I think I speak to so many women of my age that are so worried about having a baby but they know they need to if they're going to do it do it reasonably soon um but it is possible you'll just be very tired I think and it is it's really interesting isn't it I know Esther Moneta who I love and she obviously yeah. got into comedy when she, I think her second one was a baby and she used to sort of write stuff verbally like pushing the pram around and but the the judgment she got you know it's like well where's the baby you know yeah. and it's kind of like no one's asking no one's asking the men no for babies in comedy who's got the baby tonight yeah. and it's so annoying that be, and also you don't want to be fated yeah. as some kind of hero for doing it. it's like yeah we're all parents we're yeah, all sharing we're all, the load it's all, all fine. working to yeah. pay towards the household and yeah. it's um and so it's um yeah it's I, I, that's the hardest bit is getting over that voice in your head of judgments um uh but i like if people don't want to work or they do want to work just as long as you're you're happy and the baby's happy it's um it's all good and there's pros and cons that bobby does the same thing in that we're generally around in the day and we can pass it back and forth one of us does a podcast or one of us goes off and does something or writes but um but also it's difficult because at night we generally are both out but we're only out for a few hours, so getting a babysitter is um is um is working at the moment. 
And it is your, I think people sometimes don't realise with comedy that it is our job. It sort of almost feels like we're going out to do a social thing. Like whenever I'm dating people who don't aren't from this world, I don't think they get it when I'm like, they're like, well, should we get on Friday night? And it's like, well, I'm kind of booked for the Friday night for the next six yeah. months. And it's not, and it's not like yeah. I'm just going out having a laugh with my friends. I mean, I might end up doing that, but it's that's yeah, not I what mean, that probably about. will happen as well. Yeah. But yeah, you just you just have to. Yeah, it's a it's a it's a crazy thing. But maybe that. It's a good thing that you learn how to kind of sacrifice in a way of, of doing it, like because um it's you want to do it, so you just get used to not doing loads of other things you want to do as well. And you're doing something you absolutely love, which is I mean, yeah. you know, so lovely for a kid to grow up with parents who are doing something where they're actually properly engaged in what they're doing rather than oh Christ, I've got to go to the office again um and do something yeah. I don't want to do. And are you you're doing Edinburgh, are you both doing Edinburgh this year? Yes, both doing it. So we're both at the monkey barrel. Um so I won at nine ten and then Bobby's on at eleven. And so I'll do my show, go home take over and then Bobby will go do his show. You've so got the better end of the deal, I reckon. Well, but then I think I've actually haven't because I think I've been like, I'm not going to be able to go out very much because... Oh, yeah, of course. You're not going to... When Bobby gets back, it'll be like gone midnight and I'm not going to want to go out after having a bait and then by the time I get back, like, she'll be awake probably. So I don't know about this. I think I've been um, tricked. Maybe you'll get very sort of loosey-goosey after a couple of weeks in Edinburgh and you'll just be slipping like the little whatever she's sleeping in by then onto the back of the stage and be like just a little note saying, she seems to be asleep. Uh, here she is when you get off. Yeah, that must be, yeah. I, I cannot imagine doing shows, both of you, with a baby. And you've both got brand new hours. Yes, both got brand new hours. Um, so yeah, I'm touring it afterwards, um, which I think will be fun. I mean, uh, people always say about touring is so difficult, but generally when you're doing comedy you are traveling a lot anyway so you might as well do your own show that you you love to your own people exactly um and so I'm really excited about it because um I love um yeah I love I I toured my last show and I loved it so um and we've not been able to do it for a couple of years so it's and what's the name of your new show so people can come and buy tickets for it it's called Honeysuckle Island um there's tickets on my website harrietkemsley.com um or um just google it um and it's based on um i found this um uh, leaflet that i made when i was um 11 years old for this dream holiday destination called honeysuckle island and they were like zip lines and waterfalls <laughs> and like monkeys and i looked at it closely recently and i realized in a corner i'd drawn a cellulite machine and i was like this is mad that i was aware of that at that age and um i'd spelt cellulite right in island wrong <laughs> like, something is wrong here <laughs> So it's like looking at the, uh, so it's looking at that and then now having Mabel and how things haven't changed enough since I was um, a preteen until now. And so looking at the society, really. Amazing. And that's, so that's on Edinburgh and you're doing it presumably, you're doing Soho Theatre Run afterwards? Yes. So yeah. that's after Edinburgh, that's uh, mid-September um, at Soho Theatre. Yeah. Amazing. And then you're taking it around the country. Yes. Brilliant. Well, we'll definitely uh, make sure there's links to all of that. This is going out ahead of Edinburgh, so that's all good. Um, and um, I was thinking you were going to say on your Honeysuckle Island thing, and then there was a unicorn in the corner. I wasn't expecting so. You know, <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, a unicorn would have been much better, yeah. Namaste, motherfuckers. What would you pick, Harriet, as your namaste, motherfucking, life-changing moment? I guess it would probably be the the moment that I, I walked on stage doing stand-up. I mean, it could be the moment before when my parents suggested it. Um, but I think 
as soon as I I'd struggled for so long like I knew that I wanted to do like acting but then I couldn't get into drama school and I kept thinking I was a serious actor but then everyone would laugh when I was being serious and then I kept getting cast in like comedy roles and I just was like struggling a bit to find my thing and um I then when I started doing stand-up it just felt like I think as well because I'd always been really shy it was a way of kind of showing people who I am that I'd always found really difficult when I was younger so it was like a, a quick way to be like this is who I actually am after I, but I'd have to spend like a hundred hours with you to feel like I could actually be like this because it takes me a while to feel like I don't have to be like polite or worry about what you want me to say or do it was a, a real freedom of being on stage and just saying exactly what I wanted to say and um, so I guess it would be that. Did you find, because it's partly when you're a bit shyer, letting people see who you are, but I think, did, did you find there was an element of actually working out who you were anyway? So what the what the real you was, they'd even see if they could kind of thing. Did you? Yeah, I guess so. I think that, um, I think it just always took me a really long time to connect to people. And it just is a really quick way of connecting. I mean, it's very one-sided, um, but it's a way of being like, oh, this is actually what I'm like and then I feel like I can be myself more quicker and the, the more I've done it the more confident it's made me so mm-hmm. I do really recommend it to people even if you don't want to do it as a job as, as something to do if you um if you do struggle or you're a bit you're a bit shy yeah ideally don't do it as a job because there's too many comedians there's only so many jobs <laughs> to go around so just do it for your confidence and then piss off and go back to your day job That's yeah just have a nice life advice. yeah <laughs> exactly um, and what's your favorite joke I mean, I'd probably be something by Maria Bamford. Um, I yeah, she's my um, my favorite. I gigged with her uh, a couple of months ago, and it was m- mad. Was I, that I, over I, here? Yeah, I just couldn't believe it. She um, yeah, she came over, and I hosted um, uh, this show for um, Plosive, who are brilliant in um, yeah, Dulwich. they are brilliant. Yeah, and um, I just, I just, I, it was the only time I've been like completely starstruck. And yeah. we were just sat in the green room and. Uh, Felicity Ward and Nick Helm were there and we were just all trying to act like really cool but like you could tell she is a genius isn't she he's a genius yeah. and then I mean every and then she's like a bit awkward and we're all awkward so it was just like but we we're just so excited and um she has this joke um I was trying to think of my favorite one um but she's got one about um I, I mean I'm I'm terrible at saying like jokes like telling a joke none of us can um, tell a joke why would like we big, why would we I know exactly <laughs> I can only say like things I've thought otherwise it, it feels like so much pressure to say somebody <laughs> else's joke you don't want to butcher it but um she, she says something like um uh, she's talking about men and uh how um you need to watch out for red flags and then she says but what do I do if I'm a red flag factory and all I do is just make massive red flags all the time uh, she's uh, she's brilliant <laughs> oh, well definitely and some people listening may not know her actually so um, I don't think she's been quoted on the podcast so we'll put a link to her uh, I, yeah, I ended up seeing her at Angel uh, amazing like, I, was, I wasn't on with her but I, I was on either before or after and I remember having a massive like I shouldn't even be in the same building <laughs> it's been no, a terrible mistake I think she's one of the top like I think she might be the, the best stand up there is and she's not she's not that no no here it's no she's crazy. not she's um, known by comedians but I don't know how known she'll yeah. be outside of the comedy world so um well obviously all the namaste motherfucking listeners will know her now so that's good she did a yeah. did a good bit of service to her UK fan base and if you had to give one bit of life advice to anybody listening Harriet what would it be um so I guess I'm not sure if I should be the person giving life advice but if I was to give advice I'd say um 
I, I think one thing I've learned with dyspraxia is just that you have to keep, I, I got very good at failing and falling over and making mistakes and then just, and it's like very embarrassing a lot of the time, but just continuing, like you like just get really good at making mistakes. Don't worry about, about doing them because it really gives you, um, uh, I think it's a really helpful thing. And especially with stand up when, it's not always going to go well. And sometimes it's like going to be painful, but you just, you just have to keep doing it and you have to just um, get through it. And um, I have this um, bizarre, maybe it's like one of my biggest strengths, maybe ability to just um, keep going, even when um, I'm absolutely doing terribly. That was the wonderful Harriet Kemsley. So that's almost it for this week. Every episode, I pick a thing, as you know, inspired by my guests that I'm going to do. And this week, it's going to be all about authenticity. I've been working and working on my Club 20, which is, as you know, the length of set you tend to do in the clubs as a comedian. And I am going to try and go a little bit more authentic, bit less crowd pleasy, bit less scripted, bit more me. Uh, if I retired as a comedian by the next episode, you know, it did not pay off and that is it for this week thank you so much for listening please remember to rate review and recommend the show we'll be back in your feed next thursday as always when i will be talking to comedian sarah keyworth i don't know what the opposite of a perfectionist is but that is me namaste motherfuckers was written and presented by me callie beaton and produced by mike hansen and karusha dami for pod people productions with music by jake yap I'm Callie Beaton. Until next time, motherfuckers. Namaste, motherfuckers. Pod people. Hi, my name is Kay Adams, and to be honest, I'm not so good with the aging process, so I enlisted my old chum, the filter-free Cara McKenzie, to advise. Could you imagine being a porn star? The room would need to be really hot for me to strip <laughs> off. To be honest, she's not much help, but she is rather amusing. And along with some great guests, Joe Brand, Andy Oliver, Anton Dubeck, Ruth Langsford, and Craig Revel Horwood, darling, we are learning how to be 60. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.